Hi, everyone. Welcome to season two of Don't Tell the Babysitter Mom's Dead, a podcast hosted by me, Brittany Ashley, where I interview other people who've lost their mothers. After a nice, long, much-needed hiatus, I am back with more dead mom conversations, more pop culture deep dives. Thank you to everyone who listened to season one. It was kind of an experiment to see if it resonated with people. And based on the messages of support and solidarity, it sounds like it has. And so it's something that I really wanted to continue making. And you've all made this experience so very special and so worth it. This episode, I chatted with my friend and fellow writer, Brooke Baker. We actually got introduced through me making this podcast. My friend Kenny, when he heard that I was making it, he was like, hey, you should meet my friend Brooke. She's also a writer and also her mom died when she was really young. You two should go meet and talk about your trauma. And we did. And sitting across from her, I felt like I had already known her for years. Brooke was nine years old when her mom died in a car accident on a family road trip. And this is her story. My mom and my dad met in high school. He was like really dorky and she wasn't. She was like really hot. And my dad had like a lot of acne and like worked at the this like body shop with his best friend Lou. This is like 1975, Kansas. So he was working at a body shop with his friend Lou. Lou was dating Karen, whose best friend was my mom. So my the four of them hung out a lot. And my dad was like really into my mom. But my mom was sort of like, whatever. Um, then my dad left Kansas for college. My mom's mom like kind of forced her into this marriage with this guy named Dan, who was like really, really wealthy. And that was something that mattered a lot to my grandmother, who in her lifetime married eight people. She filed for a divorce from him, moved in with his best friend's girlfriend, my Aunt Lisa. They lived together. Then Dan died. He was, like, doing drugs on a boat and fell off and, like, drowned. Yeah, when my mom was, like, 22. And then my mom went on a road trip with her grandfather. They drove an RV from Kansas out to California where my dad was living. And they, like, got dinner. And my mom moved to California on the basis of that, like, dinner with my, like, dorky dad. (laughs) They got engaged like a year later and then they got married when they were 27. My mom was working as a buyer for Nordstrom. They were having troubles getting pregnant, finally got pregnant with me after she quit her job when she was 30 and then had my brother when she was 32. My brother's two years younger than me and then had my sister when she was like 35. She died at 39. My parents had a very 1950s arrangement My dad was and is a nuclear safety engineer, and my mom was kind of just Susie Homemaker. She grew up in the Midwest and had, like, very kind of Midwestern, like, Southern values around everything. And she was, like, a Republican, which I didn't understand what that was until I was much older. And then I was horrified, but she was already dead, so we couldn't argue about it. They were, like, really fun. Like, my they were really in love. They were really, like, hand-holdy and would, like— write each other notes throughout the day and like have us like send notes back and forth between them like really cute stuff like that. My mom said that I was eight going on 38. So as long as I can remember, like I just sort of followed her around and always wanted to hang out with her and her friends. Like I was never really good at being a kid. And like after my mom died, people were like, oh, you need to be a kid. And I just 
remember feeling like I never was one. Like this has nothing to do with my mother's death. I don't like kids um, and still kind of don't. Um, I was just like kind of her shadow. Like I just always wanted to like be a part of the adult conversations about their marriages. Like I was just <laughs> always way more interested in all of that than I was anything going on at like my level. My mom was really obsessed with like collections and I think she wanted me to be as well. So like every year she would like give me one of her like teacups that she'd been collecting and like one of her dolls. And I was like never into it because that's like not my deal. But she she was really into stuff like that. She just like liked having like knickknacks. Like she was very like Midwestern Southern like that. You know, mm -hmm. like our home was like decorated within an inch of its life. It just had like stuff everywhere. And when she died, she was in like a watermelon phase. So like there was just like watermelons everywhere in our house, like kind of like Mary Inglebright was like, a, I'm sure a big influence. I mean, I think the only person in our family that had died to that point was my mom's grandfather. And she was like devastated because her grandparents basically raised her because my grandma was undiagnosed bipolar, like wasn't diagnosed until her 70s. So my mom's childhood was very chaotic. And so she, her her grandparents raised her. And I think that's why she was so tethered to like very traditional ideas of stability in her own family because she didn't want us to have that kind of like shaky, shitty upbringing, which is like ironic because that's exactly what we ended up having. But she worked really hard to have like the stability that she never had. That's also why she married an engineer because she was like, well, he'll always have a job. You know, like he, my dad's really close to his family. So I think like that was just something she really tried to create. She was just like very easy and she was like very fun and like non-judgmental. And it's funny because like I'm really not that way. Like my mom, when I was five, bought me a book called 1001 Ways to Be Happy because that's the kind of five-year-old I was. Like I was just very intense and my mom's best friend, Lisa, has said since that like multiple times my mom called her and was just like, my three-year-old is trying to raise me because like, <laughs> that's just like who I was. The crazy thing is the day she died. And I, have you read um, Joan Didion's book about her husband's death, The Year of Magical Thinking? I think I have it over there, but I haven't read it yet. Oh my God, you should read it. It's so amazing. But something she talks about in that book that I had never seen articulated before, but it's so true, is when people talk about like the day something crazy happened, it's the story is always, it was just a normal day. The sun was shining and then this crazy shit happened. And then you go through that day, you end up going through the day just over and over and over as part of your grieving process. Like, where were there signs that something crazy was going to happen? Like, how could I have known? And if I'd I had known, how could I have fixed it? Yeah. And how can I prevent something like this from happening again? Like, what signs do you look for? And I remember that morning my mom was like reading like a people magazine it said like most divorces happen between marriages between like being married seven and 15 years and my parents at that time had been married for 12 years and I was like oh you better hurry up and get to 15 and my mom like laughed and then later I was like did she laugh weird like did she know she was gonna die you know like and then my dad and I got in like a big fight that morning because my sister and I got into a fight and my dad assumed it was my fault, but like it was not. And so I got really mad at my dad and like stormed up to my room and we were all about to drive to San Francisco. And my mom came in and she was like, your dad just flies off the handle. Like that's just how he is. And like, 
you just have to be very calm when you deal with him. And like, she like gave me this whole like crash course on how to deal with my dad. And then we got in the car and then I mean, she died in the car accident like three hours later. And it was just like such a, I just remember my mom just being like, you didn't do anything wrong. Your dad is just, you know, he's very, he's a very passionate man and you just have to like be very calm with him. And she like, it, it's just, it's just crazy that conversation like happened that morning, you know? It was like an old um, station wagon, like a big Buick station wagon. My mom was driving, my sister was sitting in like the center in the front seat and then I was sitting in the passenger seat. My dad ha was taking a nap in the back seat. He'd been driving and then they switched off. And then my brother was sitting in like the way, way back. And I was talking to my mom about this boy that I had a crush on in third grade who follows me on social. So I'm not gonna say his name. I don't know. We were just we were talking about it. And then this woman hit our car and we spun out. And the thing that ended up killing her is her door hit like a light pole on the side of the highway. It's like a stretch of the 101 where the light poles are technically too close to the highway. But I mean, PG&E doesn't care, so they'll never move. And that she like died on impact. We found out later. Yeah. And my sister and I were like the most kind of like scratched up from the whole thing because we were in the front. My dad hurt his back and my brother broke his nose. And so we like were in this field. We just, my sister and I just like looked over and our mom was just like, like, you know, like dead. Like it was just, it was, and we we're trying to like wake her up, but like you can't obviously. And then they were worried that our car was going to explode because of like, I don't know, they always worry about that. So they made us get out of the car and I was just like sitting on my dad's lap and they sent, there were like a ton of ambulances and they wanted to like take me and my sister away. We had to go to the um, the more urgent hospital, I guess, because we were the more injured. But I just remember like not wanting to leave until I knew what had happened to my mom. And, um, <laughs> and then she was, I think she was at the same hospital we were at, but she was airlifted there. So I was like getting an x-ray and the nurses were just saying like, mom died. And my sister had to get like a bunch of stitches in her forehead. And so they wanted me with my sister to like hold her hand and she didn't know yet. And she was so little. And my, um, Lisa's husband, Rich, like drove down from San Francisco. And so he was like in the room with us when my sister was getting stitched up and I was like holding her hand and he was holding mine. And I was like looking at him like, mom's dead and Megan doesn't know and he was like yeah I know like it'll be okay you're gonna be okay and then um I mean and we were thankfully like no one else was like that injured and then um my grandparents my dad's parents moved in with us like the next week um and that year was like so fucked up yeah well yeah and I just we were like all in the hospital room and everyone was just like so shell-shocked my family's Swedish, so they, like, don't want to talk about anything or deal with anything. So they put us in camps, like, all summer. So I was in – I mean, this happened, like, a week after third grade let out. So I was at, like, this day camp, and I remember some girl said something about my face because it was, like, covered in scabs. And the girl um, – her name is Shannon, and she was, like, the biggest bitch in our class for sure, but, like – she was on my side. So this girl said something to me and I think Shannon like almost punched her out. Like <laughs> it was like, she was so scary. 
for the rest of the time I knew her, but like she really had my back at like camp Takaniqua or whatever the fuck it was called. I love a mean girl with depth. Oh my God, love a mean girl. Yeah. Her and Danielle, they were like, no one's going to fuck with you like this summer. And I was like, cool, you guys are normally so mean. This is awesome. And then I did like a sewing camp and a soccer camp that summer. It was just like activities. Like no one wanted to talk about anything. My dad like couldn't get out of bed. You know, it was just like, it was awful. It was just like such chaos that whole summer. There were just like no healthy outlets for expression, you know? And I just remember feeling like at some point I just have to stop crying. I can't cry anymore. Like it's just too upsetting for dad. And like the whole thing became about like protecting dad very quickly. At her funeral, everyone came up to me and said that she was their best friend. And that's like a hundred people felt that way about her. Like she just, she had this way of like, making everyone in her life feel like they were the most important person to her. And then as her kids, like we knew that we were the only people that actually mattered, but like she just had this way of like making people feel very like safe and very heard and very important. So, I mean, I think that's like the ideal thing in a mom, you know? Yeah. And I think she, I mean, I know she did a really good job at that. Cause still, I mean, people still talk about her like she died yesterday. Like her death was like so devastating to so many people in her life and I don't even think she knew when she was alive like what and what her like what her life meant to other people I don't mm-hmm. think any of us do you know yeah. I went to a really small Catholic school so everyone knew like I, I didn't have to tell anyone my mom died until I was in high school like because everyone just knew which I think was kind of a good thing I think telling people that your mom died like still it's just like this whole thing it's one of the harder parts of it is just every time and then you have to deal with their reaction and it's just like a lot of like processing kind of and I'm glad I didn't have to do it for a few years you know yeah but I don't know if junior high was rough just because my mom was dead or because like I was when I was five I only wanted to talk to 38 year old women so like I think junior high was always going to be rough for me I think having I think if anything like I used my mom I weaponized my mom's death as like I'm edgy because this happened to me and like you couldn't possibly understand like I think I used it as a way to distance yourself more than other people saw distance because of it and I think like that took a long time to unpack like as an adult but I was much more like abrasive about I was I until like my 20s like I was pretty abrasive about things that had like happened to me like you can't judge me or like if you do like you're weak because like I've been through this and like how dare you you know like it was just Mm -hmm. a very I was like very intense but I think I, I really feel like I always was going to be like it just was all sort of amplified but I don't think like junior high was ever gonna be a breeze like I think it's like as big mouth has like so beautifully shown like it's just a really hard time in life it, my relationships with my friend like my female friends became a lot more and in- have always been like so intense and I think like Mara Wilson was talking about on the podcast and that book um, friend of the pod friend of the friend, pod. friend of the pod Mara Wilson um, a great follow on Twitter I just needed so much from people but then I was like so afraid to ask for what I needed and like those that's just like a deadly combination when you're talking about friendship or romantic partnership like that you kind of You feel like you have this void. You want to fill the void. You don't want to ask for anybody to help you fill the void. And then when they don't fill the void, you hate them. And it's like this 
repeating cycle that I lived through so many times in friendships and with men like to present you know Mm -hmm. it's just like something I have to actively like it's okay to like ask for things it's okay to like need physical affection it's okay to like need emotional support that doesn't mean you're weak and people aren't going to judge you for it and that just took so long to like internalize so I think all of that I mean and when you're young you have no concept that any of that is going on and so then your reactions to people don't even make sense to you let alone like them so I think a lot of those dynamics like through junior high Mm -hmm. were like rough but I, I really do believe they were always going to be but it more just sucked that I like didn't have someone to like talk to that I really like trusted like I really I think I would have like depended on my mom for a ton of support through that time because I'm sure it would have been difficult regardless but just not having a person to really talk to I think was like the hardest thing about it and like only having like babysitters who were like really figuring it out themselves too (laughs) like they're 21 so It was like a lot of trial and error and like I was really bad at asking for help and my dad uh, put us all in like private Catholic school because he felt like it would provide structure and support that he wasn't able to do like on his own, which I think was probably very smart. And because of that, like all my teachers like knew me and teachers at small schools are really invested in their kids because you don't have that many students and I think that was really valuable and like I had a few teachers in high school that I think really helped me survive high school and I had like a few female friendships that were like you know super intense and I ended up like becoming friends with people who had also been through weird trauma stuff Mm -hmm. because that's just like what you do you know so I was friends with a lot of people who felt alienated or neglected by their parents or who had been like sexually assaulted when they were kids or whose parents had like a really gnarly divorce or whose you know parents were like mentally ill in some way like that was like I just would always end up like finding those people that like I didn't feel like a weirdo around you know where like the weapon of my mom's death like could match up with their weapon of like whatever the hell you know Mm -hmm. so high school was better than junior high I felt more um understood but then I mean college was just like next level especially like everyone was so much everyone was so smart and like on a similar like path and most people at Berkeley anyway like we all kind of joked that we got into Berkeley because we had something fucked up happen in our childhoods because everybody's essay was like about some fucked up thing. So I just met like a ton of people who'd been through shit and I just was no longer like the only one. I think I took on a ton of responsibility when my mom died and I think the adults in my life let me, which is upsetting to think back to. Like I should not have had as much responsibility as I did but that's just the way our family works. Like I just like took it on and they just let me. And I, it took a lot of therapy to like not feel responsible for like, quote unquote, like how my brother and sister have turned out, you know, like it's not on, like they are their own people. I'm not their parent. Like I can't be constantly worried about them and like want more for them or less for them or whatever. Like it's not on me, but I, it, was I kept it on me for so long until I went to therapy and learned that I shouldn't do that. I don't know if it was necessarily like a distraction from my own grief, but I just like, I just was really, I just really wanted at that time for my brother and my sister to like be okay. Mm -hmm. And I think if they were okay, then I could be okay maybe. Or like I, I knew that I would not be okay if they weren't like it wouldn't, I wouldn't 
it wouldn't sit well with me. And it, I really continued to feel that way until I was like 28, you know? Yeah. So it's a lot easier, like not having the weight of like eight people on your shoulders. That's why going to college was awesome. I remember freshman year, everyone else was like struggling to do their laundry and like function. And I was like, this is so chill. Like I'm only worried about me. This is amazing. Yeah. Like college was just a massive relief. You also aren't worried about being a burden yeah means and like your peers are somewhat old enough and mature enough for when they hear that the answer is more like that must have been really hard yeah it's like people start to understand what to say or how to access it yeah I think by college people also have experienced death you know I also was more forgiving of people like if their only experience of death is their dog and then I mean then that's your experience of death that's not your fault you know and like that's how you can relate. The fact that you're even trying to is so sweet yeah. that I stopped being so like, okay, that is not the same. You know, like obviously it's not the same. They know it's not the same. It's just, it's a very human. Like mm -hmm. I think I mellowed and I think people grew up mm -hmm. and both things happened like around the same time. And it continues to, you know, like I think now like on dates and stuff, telling people that my mom died or whatever, it's like everyone has been through something by the time you're 30 something you know like no one's still like bambi eyed like people live forever what do you mean or, like you know it's just like they're like yeah yeah and you know who else's mom died bambi bambi's mom died yeah so did little mermaid so did cinderella so did i mean name them they all lost moms losing your mom is like the most fail safe inciting incident in every single movie, it's so annoying. Yeah. They've never experienced the death of their parent when you read it either. You're just like, this is not, this is not what it is. Like, you no. just didn't want to deal with the mom. Especially with, like, the dead mom trope, it also allows you to, like, access the male as, like, wow, he's such a good parent or he's such a good man because he went through this thing. Oh, my God. And the number of times, like, when I tell people that my mom died and my dad, basically my dad just hung out. Like, it, you know, like, he just didn't become an addict living in a mental health institution or something like he just was able to survive and people are like your dad is a living saint and it's like would you say that if my dad had died and my mom like basically just got us through high school would you be saying like she deserves sainthood like no the things we expect of women versus the things we expect of men are just 180 out from each other and it's incredible it's been so infuriating my entire life to hear that my father is a saint because like my mom died it's that's so crazy. Yeah, it's a crazy premise. And I used to get really pissed at people. I can't fight every battle. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're ready. No, no, no. We're ready here. The wind, you guys. This necessary? No change. Oh. Awful. No, that is not Kim. Where's Kim? Kim is always late. Oh. Get out of her way. Stop. Jealous. No. Stop. When most people think of the Kardashians, substance is not generally the first thing that pops into people's minds. But most people tend to forget that they all suffered the loss of Robert Kardashian Sr., the father to Courtney, Kim, Chloe, and Rob. Before Keeping Up with the Kardashians became a reality TV sensation, the last name Kardashian you'd recognize from the O.J. Simpson trials. Robert Kardashian was O.J.'s defense attorney. He was seen carrying O.J.'s garment bag, and O.J. even stayed at their house while he was on trial, which, uh, yeah, is not great. It's like he's not really the juice anymore. But in 2003, he was diagnosed with esophageal cancer and died two months later. And in 2007, Keeping Up with the Kardashians premiered. 
My sister and I watch the Kardashians together every Sunday. I think the thing I like the most about it is the way they talk about their dead dad because it comes up all the time, but it comes up very organically. It's not like on this week on Keeping Up, we're going to discuss the death of Robert Kardashian. It's like they talk about it every single week, um, which is what it's like when you've lost your mom and you're with your siblings. It like comes up, you know, it's like so unavoidable. And something that I have always really enjoyed about the show is that all of the girls are so fixated on death and like what would happen to their kids like if they die and whenever they get a new partner it's always like okay well if I die you know like this sister this is the sister that I'm appointing to be like most in charge of the kids like you'd better be okay with that and these guys are always like why are you talking about dying and they're like my dad died like shut the fuck up like I could die I think one of the things about the Kardashians is like they're maligned for presenting like an unrealistic idea about like bodies or femininity ultimately they're just capitalists and it's just offensive because they're women I think the show is like a really positive show about a family dealing with like the death of a patriarch and like how they have like come together after that and how it still affects them all the time and especially as they have kids and like with their partners and what kind of men they've chosen and how involved they are in each other's families like my sister and I have always said that if we have kids we want to be living in the same city because like what if one of us dies and some dude is like left with our kids like no Chris every season talks about her death and like what she wants her kids to do in the event of her death and how she wants to be interred. And like, it's just an ongoing conversation on that show that I think no one talks about that. It's like so much about death and even the girls, like the way they're constantly working on their bodies. I do think it's like this weird search for immortality and the way Kim is like kind of ageless on Instagram because of all the filters and stuff. I think they're all like really obsessed with youth and beauty we all are, but like I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that their dad died and the way they talk about their dad as just like he was like such a good man and like so stable and like Courtney, like it took her years to forgive Chris for cheating on her dad, like because he died and was with this horrible woman and like how could you have cheated on him? And just like those long standing resentments are like mm-hmm. Shakespearean, you know. In my crash course on the Kardashians, I found a few moments that struck me which were the surviving children talking about their dad. Like this one moment for Kim where it came up right before her wedding to Chris Humphreys, chatting with her step-parent about how much she misses her father. (laughs) It's like seeing these shirts and stuff, knowing my dad wore them. It's just like so much, you know? It's like been so stressful and so much about like, how much did this cost and this cost? Like... Like seeing all those clothes, and it's like, just like a lot to do it. It's okay. I'll get you through this, okay? And it's like hard because I can't really like be emotional in front of Chris. I don't want to be. Yeah. You know, like he didn't know my dad. It's like different. But there's like moments where I'm just like, I wish my dad was here. I wish he was here too. See it all. I know. I know. I realized that I've been taking so many frustrations out on Chris and I've been like just not really remembering what the whole purpose of this whole event is about. I think your dad would love Chris. And Chris is a really good person. Do you know how proud your father would be of you? And you kind of live your life to be, you know, in his honor, you know? And one thing was apparent in my crash course is that the death affected Rob Jr. in a way that 
it didn't affect his sisters and it created somewhat of a separation between the family isolating Rob. Oh, and it just makes me feel like so bad for Rob Jr. Like as kind of, you know, like we're both like daughters of dead moms. And I think like being like this, the only boy of Robert and he's dead and like having just this like like as much as it and was being different. named after him as well. being There's... named after him and as much as you and I like struggled to figure out like what it means to be like a woman without your mom imagine being the only boy in the Kardashians and like how intense that would be and he died in 2003 which relatively like isn't that long ago for them you know I mean that's like 15 or 16 years it doesn't ever feel like, oh, my God, it feels like it was so long ago. It's like, no, it feels in a lot of ways. It feels like yesterday. Um, and I think like watching Rob over the seasons and like how much he struggled and like how like attached he gets to the boyfriends of like and like it's just like really endearing to me. Mm -hmm. Like and how he I think he's like really struggled to figure out who he is. And then like whenever his sisters like break up with the boyfriends and then they're like not in the life anymore. It's just like, I don't know, Rob breaks my heart on that show. It's all like the time. daddy abandonment stuff. Yeah, totally. According to the article titled Rob Kardashian's Father Wounds by psychologists with a focus on adults, Dr. George Sachs, George actually agrees with Brooke. He says, I follow the Kardashians as if they were a family in therapy, sitting on my couch working through their substantial issues. I listen intently for the subtleties of their communications hidden alliances, desperate cries for attention, validation, or connection. As a credit to the family, they often go off script and reveal themselves to the world with startling authenticity. George goes on to say that Rob has not fully dealt with his father hunger. I mean, I intuit it's not easy being in the public eye while trying to grieve. And George hypothesizes that the Kardashian daughters seem to have done this, finding men to marry and feeling close enough to their step-parent, Caitlyn, to walk them down the aisle. George says the Kardashian daughters were adults when their father died, which perhaps lessened the psychological blow of his loss. And as George and Brooke both say, Rob got really excited when a new male figure showed up in his life, like when Chloe married Lamar Odom. He seemed to be doing really well around that time because of the bond that he and Lamar had. However, when they got divorced, it seemed like Rob took another nosedive. George points to one specific episode where Rob broke down to his mother, Chris, about how lost he felt in life. Dr. Sachs put into words what he would say to Rob as if he were one of his patients. If Rob were on my couch, I would allow him space to grieve his father. It's not just his father's physical absence that needs to be acknowledged, but the meaning of that loss in his life. I would help Rob see how lost he feels without him and how difficult it is to move forward without his father's guidance and wisdom. I would validate this dependency and praise Rob for trying so hard amidst the confusion and chaos. Through a process called Empty Chair, Rob would get to address the unfinished business with his deceased father, who is imagined in an empty chair in front of him. Through this conversation, Rob might realize that he already has received tremendous gifts from his father. Perhaps he would learn that his father has his back, loves and supports him, whether a success or failure as a lawyer, teacher, or businessman. Mostly, though, throughout Rob's time with me in therapy, I would validate and affirm him. By doing this over weeks and months, the hope is that Rob could begin to affirm himself revealing the path to self-confidence. And I think that Robert Kardashian was a really good person. I mean, by like all, by all accounts, he was like a really good man and like really stable. And I think he was a rock for all of them. And I think Kris Jenner is sort of like a Tracy Flick type who can like make the world happen, but like kind of at what cost. Mm -hmm. And I think she didn't know what the hell to do with Rob and 
just, I don't know, poor Rob. Rob really makes me so sad. Courtney started going to therapy last year. And what I loved about the storyline was when you first start going to therapy, you think you're the first person that's ever been. And there's this whole period of time in the first like six months where you're like, oh, like this thing about my childhood was fucked up. And oh, like this thing about my childhood is fucked up. And then you feel like you have to tell everyone in your family all this knowledge you have now about how they are so fucked up. (laughs) And she did that for like a whole season. And everyone was just like, get the fuck away from me. You're so mean. Like, I don't need you to like tell me that your weird therapist like thinks I'm unhealthy. And just like that show is just, it's more interesting than people give it credit for, I think. How many times have, have you replayed the accident? How often do you revisit that, those oh like images? God. I feel like so often. I feel like they just come up all the time. Like I, I, especially like I really don't like driving. I never have ever again, really. But in LA, you're just, you're always in your car, you know? So it's just, and I just know that you can like die. Like you can be talking about nothing and die. Like it's, I, so it comes up a lot. Actually, I think about it a lot. And I think about that day a lot. And I think about her and like what she was wearing. You know, if we hadn't been in Salinas, like if we'd been in like a more metropolitan area where they like had better doctors, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I think about it all the time. I, I feel like of my three siblings, I remember her the most. And I, ha- I feel like I have to be this like historian. And it's like so sad to me that they don't remember her because like she was so great and it's like such a bummer that they don't have the connection to her that like I did and that I like like I like knowing that she like had dumb collections that were silly and meaningless to everyone but her but like it was so sweet that she like thought we would all care so much you know it's (laughs) Mm -hmm. like and then we all just played along because like whatever it's fine like no it, it like I I like knowing all that stuff about her and then everybody had this like very idyllic version of her so I think it's been she's turned into something that's not entirely human it's like we're trying to like think about yourself relative to like this like Venus de Milo statue of a lady and you're like I will never I could never live up like are 200 people going to come to my funeral and say that I was their best friend? Like, I don't, you know, and it's just an impossible thing. What aspects of your life do you feel like it's had like a permanent effect on? Mm. Definitely romantic relationships. I think that's like been the biggest, I think I need so much from a partner, but like don't want to ask for any of it. And that's just this like constant ongoing struggle. I know that it's like, I know that It's so reasonable, but it's like, I think it's the idea of like asking for something and then being, it's like really hard for me to be vulnerable with people, especially men. My therapist says that like, I'm just like a nine-year-old with like the logic skills of an adult. So I have like the emotional trust of like a nine-year-old, but like with an adult brain. So he's like, so you game out situations, but from the emotional logic of like a nine-year-old. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So like I am like, well, I've no guys ever shown up for me ever. So like, why would they? So I'm never going to ask anyone for anything and then be shocked when I'm single. So it's like, I think that has gone on forever. Right now, I can't see how that resolves. I hope it does. I just don't see the path. So I think that's kind of been the biggest thing. And I think my relationship just to my femininity and like, being told forever like how beautiful my mom was and then just the immediate like 
they say that and then look at me as though like, but do you look like her? Like, I don't know. Let's see. And I just feel this like assessment constantly as to like how I'm like living up to her or not. And I really hate that so much. It's so unfair. It's such an unfair thing for people to do to me and they just do it and have done it forever. And so I think I have like a negative, I think it's like encouraged sort of a a negative self-image in a way that I really try to like work against because I know it's not about me. It's like about their grieving process and they're not mature enough to deal with it on their own and they're just projecting it onto our daughters. Like I know all of that, but then in the moment you're just like, stop looking at me to see what about my face is similar to my mom's or not. Like mm-hmm. I don't need you to be a mirror right now, you know? So I think, I think those two things and I'm sure they're related, mm-hmm. you know? What do you think has been the most helpful tool or person or relationship or anything that has really helped just like process the experience in general? I think it's like come in waves through different relationships. You know, like I think I've like sought different things out at different points in my life. In high school, Jenny was like really important to me and so was Rebecca, neither of whom I'm friends with anymore. But I think like both of those relationships were like really important in terms of like figuring out what kind of woman I wanted to be or like what kind of girl I wanted to be in high school. Like I just wanted to be, they were the most similar to me that I'd ever met. And I think my friend Jessica, who I am still friends with, she was like really grounded and very kind of like wise beyond her years when we were in high school. And I think that was like, I felt really safe with her and and it was like a different dynamic than it was with Jenny and Rebecca, which was more like, we were like all really competitive and weird and intense and like it wasn't it was never like that with Jessica and then I think my first like major love relationship showed me how much I needed to like work on he was so he was so unstable that I felt really stable comparatively and then my therapist that I started going to when I was like 28 the whole narrative around my mom's death at the time was just that like I was I acted so much older than I was and so people treated me older than I was and he really helped me see that like nine is very young which sounds like really crazy to say out loud but I really didn't know that until I went to therapy like I felt like I had failed in some way like that I wasn't better at dealing with my mom's death and I didn't help my dad enough and I wasn't enough for my brother and sister and I felt so like everything that had happened to me at that point was my fault and realizing that I was nine and in no way responsible for anything and it was the adults of my life who were responsible and they're the ones that failed, not me. And that, you know, the thing about someone's death, it's sort of like getting married. You have no dry run. It's like you don't have, there's no dress rehearsal. It just sort of happens and then everyone does the best they can. And much like a wedding, it can go off the rails really quickly. And I think like my, our family just had no, like we talked about nobody else had really died. So there was no healthy framework for like how to deal with it. And like, you know, I, unless you've been through it, like if my best friends, if my best friend died and left behind kids, like I might be maybe better at helping, but like, does anyone really know what to do in that situation? I think I really relied too much on myself to figure things out. And then I think like my relationship with Thatcher, like he, he was like really fundamental. He's like such a huge part of the reason I am who I am now. Like that was such a big relationship. And he never once judged me for having lost my mom. Like he didn't think it made me weird. He never said I was intense. 
which is just this word that I'd gotten my entire life. Like he never used that. I don't think I was compared to him. Like I think we were both really intense. I think he's just such a huge part of the reason I even had confidence to move to LA and like pursue writing. That relationship is the separation for me of like childhood to adulthood. You write, you know, characters who have lost a mom or even just like having it be an inciting incident, but it is a very, uh, it's very realistic, which is wonderful. I think like most of us wish that those representations were as realistic mm -hmm. as if it was coming from someone who had experienced it. Yeah. And so I'm curious about kind of like if that has been healing or if that has uh, helped with grief or is that just kind of like the world that you know, so therefore you're going to write what you know. I think it's like, I think it's all of the above. I think writing um, about, I wrote a high school thing that was like very much about my mom's death. The nice thing about that project was just seeing it. I'd never seen it through my dad's eyes in the way that you do when you're writing and you have to get into a character's mindset to write scenes about them. Like I, I saw, I feel like for the first time, like how scary and devastating that must have been and I had more instead of being so angry about being disappointed I had more sympathy for him and I think that was good for both of us and like I think I, I also like let myself off the hook for some of my behavior in the immediate aftermath like of course I was angry and of course I hated everything and like that didn't mean I was like a bad kid. Like it just meant my mom had died and I had no outlet, you know? But you know, whenever I start writing anything, I'm just like, wait, but who died? Like, why are they so fucked up? So who, which one died? And that's why I'm, you know, that's why I'm writing the things that I talked about before, because like, it just, if I find out that someone in pop culture or just in general, like lost their mom or lost their dad, all of a sudden they just come into focus for me. Like all of their stuff makes a lot more sense. And so when I'm writing a lead character, it's like really hard to imagine them with parents. Like, I, yeah. what must that, why do you have any problems with parents? <laughs> I know that's close-minded, but it's like, it's just like, I don't get it. Like, go to therapy. What's wrong with you? Your mom's alive. <laughs> I think like living with my sister keeps her really alive for us. Like, there's like little tokens. I have like, she just loved like tchotchkes and stuff and I found I was gonna a, ask like what happened with those yeah. collections well my I think the collections are in boxes that I'm sure we'll have to like deal with when my dad dies but they're I mean these are not like I should say these are like not like cool dolls these are like pretty they were like very she like had them just I don't know they're not something that I would want it's cool that they still exist somewhere but it, there's like this weird thing about we have my mom's sewing machine at our house and I have a new sewing machine that weighs nothing and is better. And But, like, my sister and I just cannot bring ourselves to, like, throw away her sewing machines. Even though there's no universe where we use them, we just can't do it. They're just, like, sitting in the corner in boxes in our kitchen. They look so ugly. And they're just there. And, like, that's the weird thing about it. It's like, oh, if we throw those away, like, you know, is she more dead or something? But my... Dad just gave us all of her quilts, which are, of course, just in a trunk, like, in her house. So, like, we have a lot of our, her shit around, and it's just in trunks, and, like, we don't know what to do with any of it. And I try to, like, you know, I my Aunt Lisa and I talk a lot, and we talk about my mom whenever we talk, which is good. And, like, whenever I'm going through something, it's sort of nice to, like, ask her, like, what mom would have done and how she would have handled it, you know. No one in my family dealt with her death very well. So in this weird way, she's still very, like, 
active in everybody's conversation and in their minds. Like my grandmother, like my dad's mom can't mention my mom without like tearing up. Like she's just like still like so sad that this woman died 20, now 23 years ago, you know, which is just like a lifetime ago. But like for my grandmother, it's like it just happened. Like, so she's, she's still, she's still so like around, you know? Yeah. They never really go. It's like a weird, it's, yeah, I don't know. They are, it's, ghosts are like real, you know? And it's not that they're physically here, but the, the living really do keep them alive. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't let people go. Yeah. If you want to find out more about Brooke, you can follow her on Twitter at BrookeBaker317. I'm also going to be posting a few little extras on the Patreon page, which is at patreon.com slash deadmomcast, like the full article on Rob Kardashian's father wounds and an extra from this episode as well. I'm Brittany Ashley, and you can follow me at Brit27Ash on Twitter and Instagram. That's B-R-I-T-T-2-7-A-S-H. Or you can find some of my work at BrittanyAshleyFunny.com. The music is by Interstellar Sarah Michelle Geller, and the logo is by Christine Tuna. See you next episode. And I remember sitting in this room in silence and at this point thinking, oh, mom's just like, you know, she's just, she's sick or like, uh, you know, I had, I had absolutely no idea what the, what the specifics were other than mom had been taken to hospital. Um, and so when the nurse came in, <laughs> it was a very weird <laughs> I'm only laughing because uh, the nurse came into the room and handed my little sister a pamphlet that was like something to do with loss and said oh i'm so sorry and we had no idea our mom had passed away (laughs) sorry i'm only laughing because i honestly believe that this nurse still thinks about this moment to this day